So the reading for today will be from Psalm 56. Um, so Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long, they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? They, then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust and I'm not afraid. What can a man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. Before we open God's word together, let me just say um, how much I appreciate uh, the invitation of this church to be with you, but uh, especially to open the scriptures uh, together. Uh, this is my last Sunday uh, in Latvia this year. Uh, God be willing, I might be back next year. Um, at least I hope so. On Friday, I'm flying to uh, Liberia. Now, how many know where Liberia is? Oh, yeah, good, good. Most Americans would have no idea. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to be teaching there also at a pastor's conference and uh, spending a little bit of time also some vacation as well. I've never been to Liberia. Um, I actually was supposed, I, I studied for two years in South Africa in 1990 to 1992, and our plane was supposed to land in Monrovia Airport for refueling, but there was a civil war going on and there was shooting around the airport, so we were, we were diverted to the Gambia for our refueling. But now I get a chance to see Liberia anyway. And my hopes, my prayers are with you that God will bless you uh, this week and in the next year as well. This morning, we uh, turn to Psalm 56, and I want to focus on two parts of the psalm, which, if you listen closely to the reading, they echo each other. First, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I think the translation that was read was, what can mortal man do to me? Which is a good translation. Then if you drop down to verses 10 and 11, these words, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that's a different word in Hebrew. Now, by the way, this, the, the thought in these uh, several verses are echoed elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, in Psalm 11, the Lord, in the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to me, flee as a bird to your mountain? Or Psalm 118, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? 
And then that's echoed later on in Hebrews 13. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Dear congregation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Eden, when the man and the woman had sinned against God, what was their reaction when they heard the sound of the Lord approaching? They were afraid. So they hid. They hid among the trees of the garden. Why were they afraid? Fear is the reaction of a human being when something that is fearful or terrifying approaches them. And they knew that as God was approaching, he was bringing his judgment. Here comes God and he is not pleased. So they hid. But you also notice that throughout scripture, when God or maybe his holy angel comes to commission a person to do some kind of work for him, some of the opening words will be, fear not, don't be afraid. I'm with you, I will help you, I will strengthen you, you will face opposition, you will face enemies, but don't be afraid. And so this morning we take a look at Psalm 56, focusing in context, of course, but focusing on verses three and four, 10 and 11, and I want to look at those verses under the theme, trust in God replaces fear with praise. Trust in God replaces fear with praise. And these verses identify two reasons for fear. Now, that's not exhaustive. There are more than two, but at least two are mentioned. And then secondly, the one answer that the word of God provides for fear. Now, Psalm 56 belongs to the category of Psalms, and this summer we're looking at Psalms for the summer. It belongs to a category that we call laments. Uh, now, I've been in churches that will have uh, praise teams. I've never been in a church that has a lament team. <laughs> now, I can understand why, because the movement of the Psalms towards the end is always a movement towards praise. Movement towards doxology. In fact, the last five or six psalms all begin with the same phrase, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And then when you get to Psalm 150, the last psalm, that's the granddaddy of them all. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So doxology is the last word. But to get there, there are psalms that identify reasons why we lament. Now, why would scholars call Psalm 56 a psalm of lament? Well, it, it has the features of lament. The psalmist cries out to God, you know, be gracious to me, O Lord, give ear. Uh, they, the psalmist identifies why he's in distress. That can be a variety of things. Often it's enemies. They plot against me. They twist my words out of context. Uh, they're against me in some ways. The psalmist perhaps identifies why God should listen to him. He gives reasons to the Lord. And then often in these psalms, there's kind of a turning point, kind of a turning point where deliverance is experienced. And then often the psalm will end with promises or vows 
that you make to the Lord, maybe promises to sacrifice in the Lord's temple. And then you come to the end of the psalm. Laments. Now, there are three moods uh, that are identified here in our verses. There's fear, then there's trust, and then it ends in praise. The psalmist is afraid because of his enemy's hot pursuit. They chase me. There's slander. There's plotting and conspiracy, verses 5 and 6. Identify, talk about that. And then fear hits the psalmist when he realizes that his enemies are behind his back, maneuvering against him. He's afraid. But he doesn't yield to the fear. He doesn't give in to it. No, uh, and he turns to God, trust turns to God. And we, we hear this phrase uh, repeatedly in verses three and four and 10 and 11, in God, in God. And then you get a threefold reference in verses 10 and 11, in God, in the Lord, in God. And when he uses the word Lord, he's, he's identifying that name, that covenantal name where God identifies himself, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a God who makes covenant with, his, uh, with your uh, fathers, and I keep my word. I keep my covenant with them. He's a faithful God. And so that fear then it, it turns to trust. I will trust in the Lord, and then it uh, ends up with praise. Again, even within this psalm, there's a kind of uh, movement towards doxology. Now, when we read the Psalms, and this is true for all 150, though it's not always so apparent, the Psalms are words about Christ, and they are the words of Christ. Read the Psalms sometime and think of Christ as the principal singer of these Psalms. Because even in the New Testament, it, it will say, uh, when he came into the world, he said, and it quotes Psalm 40. When he came into the world, he, Christ, said. The Psalms open up to us words about Christ. They open us up to the words of Christ. But now that forces us to ask this question as we think about Psalm 56. Was Christ ever afraid? Verses 3 and 4, 10 and 11. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Was Christ ever afraid? Now, from the New Testament, we know he could be angry. He made whips and he chased those who were selling, you know, sheep and doves out of the temple. He could be angry. He could be very sad at the, at the grave of his good friend Lazarus. John 11 says he wept. We know he could be hungry. There are many, many things that we go through ourselves. We know that uh, Jesus also experienced. But was he ever afraid? Now, this becomes important when we read in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 2, rather, 2 verse 14, that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things. Okay, sin accepted, of course, but he was made like us in all things. 
And then that becomes even more pointed, more important when you come to Hebrews 4. For in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, it says that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses. And that word sympathy doesn't mean I feel sorry for you. That's not what it means. It's the idea of entering into the experience of someone so that you know what they're going through. You've entered their passions and their fears. You see, was Jesus ever afraid? And that's important because does he understand me? When I'm going through fears, does he get it? Or is he a God who's so far away that he just couldn't be touched with our weaknesses? Do I have in heaven a sympathetic high priest who's able to enter into my experience and know the terror of my soul? Let's be clear about a few things. Jesus was never afraid of any man. Crowds at Nazareth, he walks through the middle of them. I mean, how did he get away with that? He just walks through and he's gone. Uh, Pharisees plotting against him. He was not scared of the Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulchers. Pontius Pilate, Pilate, you know, I've got all this authority of the Roman government. Jesus says, you wouldn't have anything unless God gave it to you first. I'm not afraid of you, Pilate. He was afraid of no man, no man ever. But go back to another garden, not the Garden of Eden. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there the second man, the second Adam, is afraid. Because the Gospel of Luke says that when he began to pray, his sweat became mixed with blood. You say, well, maybe it was a really hot and muggy night. No. In, April, in March and April in Palestine, when the sun goes down, the temperature drops. And we know that later on in the courtyard of the high priest, they had a little charcoal fire going to warm themselves. So it was not a hot and muggy night. What caused Jesus, when he prayed, to pray sweating and there was blood mixed in his sweat? Well, psychologists tell us that when people are under such intense pressure, Capillaries start bursting, and then a little bit of blood starts to mix into the sweat. Well, what would put him under such pressure? Well, what does he say? There's this cup in front of me, and it contains the wrath of God against the sins of God's people. And I must drink this cup to the dregs. In other words, Jesus, let me put this in other words. I'm facing hell. No, not when we use that term too flippantly, you know, a difficult situation. No, I'm facing hell. Abandonment by God. The, the wrath of God poured out on me. Now that is terrifying. That's terrifying. So when, what can you rely upon when you and everyone and anything around you fails you and you are struck with fear? Well, the answer is God, the covenant Lord. Now, you knew that was going to be the answer. 
That's not a surprise to you, but what exactly does that mean? After all, can't the church be a place where I can receive support and help in my fears? Well, yes and no. Yes, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We're the family of God. And we are concerned about each other. But no. Sometimes people just miss the moment. And you try to put on a happy face, and they don't realize that behind those smiles is, is, is a lot of fear or, or uh, unhappiness, distress, anxiety. Or people try to say something or do something, and oh my, that was awkward. That actually hurt more than it really helped. And so you sort of grin through it, but that didn't help. So is the church a place where we can receive support? Yes, sometimes no. Who are these enemies David keeps writing about? Who, who hates him? Who's always plotting against him? Well, this psalmist faced enemies. I remember I teach in the United States, and when we were studying the Psalms one time, a student said, well, Professor, who are our enemies today? And I was taken aback by the question because I thought the answer is pretty self-obvious. But maybe it isn't. After all, most of us in Western countries don't face open, blunt persecution. And if someone disagrees with you, even vigorously, that doesn't make them enemies. You don't have to denounce them on Facebook or something like that. That doesn't make them enemies. They disagree with you. All right. But who are these enemies? Now, to be sure, fear can come from a variety of places. I mean, think of little children. They can be afraid of loud thunder. They can be afraid of strangers, afraid of large dogs, whatever. And some of us can be afraid of health concerns, financial difficulties, relationship difficulties with family and friends, that all those can be reasons why we are afraid. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52, it names three of our enemies that cause fear, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And verse 4 of Psalm 56 mentions um, flesh or mortal man, whereas verse 10 and 11, verse 11 uses the word Adam. What can Adam do to me? Now, Adam is that kind of Hebrew word that identifies a human being, a human being, not man uh, as a male, but what can a human being do to me? And, and in using that word, it's identifying the society around us, mankind, society as that is organized in its opposition to God, Opposition to Christ, opposition to his kingdom. And in parts of this world, that kind of human society does not want Christians around. They uh, harass them, they oppose them, and in some places they even persecute them, kill them. What can man do to me? Well, sometimes a lot. David knew what that was like. 
Before he takes his throne uh, on, uh, in the city of Jerusalem, who's chasing him around? King Saul. And sometimes Saul says, oh, I'm sorry, David, uh, I, I won't do that again. And then two chapters later, there he is. He's after David again. Or even when he becomes king, why does David have to flee from Jerusalem? His own son, Absalom, rallies the Israelites against his father, David. And there we see in 2 Samuel, David weeping as he leaves the city of Jerusalem. What can man do to me? Sometimes a lot. Sometimes a lot. And Psalm 56 verse 3 does not say, if I am afraid. Literally it says, in the day that I am afraid. It presupposes that we will have moments in our life where an enemy or enemies are making their moves against us. So that we become afraid of the next phone call. We become afraid of that next visitor. We become afraid of the next day because you know you have to face and meet that person who's got it in for you. But that fear cannot grip us in such a way that it paralyzes us. Oh no. For there's always God. There is that covenant Lord who stands there like a fortress, a refuge, a place of security, who never sleeps and who never slumbers. He's always there. Therefore, I will not be afraid. I may face all kinds of opposition in this world, but I will not be afraid. Man can attack me. Man may oppose me. Man may plot against me, but in God, in God, in the Lord, I will put my trust. What can Adam, what can mankind do to me? But now that other enemy, back to verse four, flesh, mortal man, now, the word flesh in the Bible does not refer to your body. It does not refer to your body, but it becomes kind of a symbol of man in his weakness. Now, to be sure, it can refer to humanity. All flesh is as grass. In the flood, all flesh was destroyed in the flood. But what is flesh in Scripture? It, it's my old nature. It's that old man of sin. It is that configuration of desires and thoughts and attitudes that I have inherited from the first Adam. Old Adamic flesh. I live with it. And it hates me. You live with it. And it hates you. Sometimes I am in league with it. And then other times I absolutely hate it. And Romans 7 then speaks to us when it says, the law comes and it arouses in our flesh the passions of the sinful nature. So that Romans 7 ends with this cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this dead body? Consider David again. <laughs> the man after God's own heart. What was that like for him? Well, you know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
And brothers and sisters, do you know that when he did that, this was not a youthful indiscretion. It was in his advanced years that he had that affair with Bathsheba. And not only does he have an affair, then he engineers uh, the death. He conspires to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. What can flesh do to me? Sometimes a lot. There was an experiment carried out in America, um, I don't know, 40 years ago, something like that, in which they took a, a group of college-aged young people, college kids from America. You know, your average nice kids. No, no, really. But this is the experiment. They divided them into two groups. This group will be the guards. This group will be the prisoners. And then they let them go for a week. Now, I'm told that in the experiment, after a week, the guards who thought they had to make something happen with the prisoners were doing things with the prisoners, so-called, that were disgusting, disgraceful, immoral, and even dangerous. My point is this. If you allow the sinful nature to go, it will sprout the weeds of sin. That's why, my friends, don't be surprised if things in life disappoint you. Your friends, even trusted friends, can let you down. Your church community is there for you, but not always there. Your family. Committees, oh, they always, those are a big disappointment. If you have forever, delegate it to a committee. And more than that, brothers and sisters, you will disappoint yourself. Mankind and mortal flesh all disappoint. More than that, they may even attack you. I'm learning what this psalm means myself. But I also have wonderful news for you. What can these enemies do to you? Adam, mankind, our flesh? Absolutely nothing. You say, now, Pastor Vanderhart, now you're contradicting yourself. You've been going on and on and on about what these enemies can do to us. And now you say they can do nothing? That's right, nothing. Why? Because who I am and who you are as believers is no longer defined by our relationship to the first Adam. That doesn't define who we are. In fact, the scriptures tell us that my life and your life is actually hidden in Christ. That's where our true identity really is. So that all the things that I see around me, and even the things I grasp at to get, to take, to get, to take, I will not be able to take them out of this life. You know, you've probably heard the saying that uh, when the hearse is taking a body to the cemetery, there's no U-Haul behind it. All that I have, all that I gain, I will lose in the moment of death. But again, I've got good news for you. If you leave this life with Christ, you have everything. You are the richest of all people. When you have Christ, 
All things are yours, for you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So that we don't leave this world with absolutely nothing. We leave this world with Christ, by grace, through faith in him, the Son of God. That's good news. That's good news. So can things hurt us? Yes. Can they frighten us? Sometimes even profoundly. But what of it? Nothing can defeat you when you are in the shelter and the fortress of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, we praise God for the word of God. We praise the Lord for his glorious word. So then I come back to that question, who are you? Who are you? For the answer to that question is really, really the answer that you and I have against fear. Who am I? What is it that defines me and defines you? It's the word of God. That's what defines us. The work of Christ, the person of Christ, and all that he has done for us, that's what defines who we are. I know this God because he first knew me and then revealed himself to you, to me. He, he said he would defeat the devil, and he did. He's reliable in his covenant, because he said, I will send my son, and he did. That word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And if guilt and sin are the, is, is the main barrier between you and God, Jesus takes your guilt, all of it. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. He drank that cup to the very bottom. He remained faithful to his purpose to take your sin and guilt to himself. But more than that, more than that, on resurrection morning, he conquered death to become the first fruits of the resurrection. Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. And more than that, he then ascends. His ascension wasn't just a, you know, let's get out of this mess. Let's get out of, the, out of the way. No, this was the movement of a priest and king to the right hand of the Father, where he sits enthroned forever, waiting for his enemies to become the footstool of his feet, all those enemies, and he intercedes for you because he is, he is a sympathetic high priest who understands what you're going through. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious Savior. In God, in God, in the Lord, I will put my trust what can these enemies do to me? Absolutely nothing. You see, in Colossians 3, verse 3, we read this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, there's two things being said here. Number one, your life is hidden. Now, if something is hidden, you don't see it. I don't see it. I don't know exactly what that all is going to look like because my life is hidden. But brothers and sisters, when your life is hidden with Christ in God, it's in the safest place. So it's going to be absolutely marvelous, beautiful, and it's perfectly safe. What can flesh do to me? Nothing. I'm not defined by my old flesh. What can my enemies do to me? Nothing. In this world, you may have tribulation, but Jesus said, John 16, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. 
So that the psalmist now praises God the Lord for his word. God has spoken words to you, words of comfort, words of encouragement, words that ring true in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Are you trusting him? When I am afraid, and that will happen, I will put my trust in Christ, in God, in the Lord, in God. What can these enemies do to me? And this psalm continues to speak to us, even in Romans 8. You remember what Paul says? Paul says, you know, who could bring any charge against us? Yeah, but they're plotting behind my back to stab me in the back. So? It's Christ who died, and that's the death that counts. Yeah, but what about trouble and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Yes, but the world treats us like sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Trust, no more fear, trust in God. And that fear then begins to melt away. It gives way to praise for God's grace, his power, his protection. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Christ, the true fortress, the, the sympathetic high priest who understands what we go through, even in this life where this world is not a friend of grace, but your grace is more powerful than our guilt. Your grace is more powerful than the opposition that rises up against you. The devil may be a dragon who tries to uh, devour the Christ, attacks the woman, and yet he is defeated. And so, Father, strengthen our faith this morning that as we face this coming week, we will go into every situation with the confidence of faith, looking to where our eyes cannot see, but where our faith directs us, even to your Son, our Savior, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.